Welcome to the Glenwood Table Podcast, where we are reimagining Christian faith for the 21st century. I'm one of your hosts, the Reverend Lana Hurst, and you can refer to me with she, her pronouns. Today's episode is a tough topic for some who grew up in the Christian tradition. For me personally, I certainly grew up with one viewpoint that I no longer hold. In today's episode, we'll be exploring what reproductive rights looks like in the church. You'll hear from me, the Reverend Emmy Arnold, Virginia Goss, the hospital chaplain, and a new voice for this podcast, Brendan Berth, who is a practicing Catholic. However, they don't necessarily agree with everything the Catholic Church teaches, especially when it comes to reproductive rights. So I invite you for this episode to listen in and think about what you grew up hearing about reproductive rights when it came to religion. What religious authorities told you about reproductive rights and how did they frame it? Maybe you heard really positive messages or maybe you heard messages that were really narrow. So in this episode, no matter where you are on this spectrum, I invite you to ponder where you are and think about what assumptions underlie your beliefs currently. Additionally, there will be some resources in the description that you can check out where you can go and learn more. Maybe there's something you want to do to respond. Maybe you want to reach out. We are here. Feel free, as always, to reach out to us. So as we prepare for this episode, I invite you to take a deep inhale and a slow exhale. As you take that deep breath in and deep breath out, I want to offer a few content notes that may help you to decide whether this episode is well-timed for you or whether another time might be better to listen to it. I want to offer content notes for suicide, infant death, eugenics, and sexual assault. So take some time and find your way to engage with this topic in whatever way feels healthiest for you. We hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Glenwood Table Podcast, where we are reimagining Christian faith for the 21st century. I'm one of your hosts, the Reverend Lana Hurst. You can refer to me with she, her pronouns. We have two former and longstanding members. One of our other hosts is here, the Reverend Emmy Arnold, and we have Virginia Goss. And we also have a new voice joining us. I'm Brendan Berth. I use he, him pronouns. I come very much from a Catholic background and I'm actually still Catholic myself, but also am very, very open to a wide variety of Christian faith traditions. And I'm also a friend of Emmy's. I'm Emmy Arnold. I am a reverend in the PCUSA and I work as a hospital chaplain, and I work with Lana at both Glenwood Table and First Press of Glen Cove. And I'm Virginia Goss. 
I am a member of the PCUSA Church in the ordination process, and I am also a hospital chaplain here in New York. So we are switching things up a little bit. We got a Catholic in the mix tonight, which is especially pertinent because tonight we are talking about reproductive rights in the church. Tonight, we want to talk about our own experiences that we've had in the church in terms of how reproductive rights were presented to us within a Christian framework. And what do we want to hear ultimately? So the token um, child atheist here, I did not hear anything about reproductive justice within a religious context. My mom was a consistent donor to Planned Parenthood. There was never any question in my house that sex ed would happen at school and at home, and that the conversation in the door was always open with my mom, and, you know, that she wanted to know about things to make sure that we could be together in medical things if necessary. And so it was always a very sex positive, open conversation with someone who took me to my first protest which I know is a very different experience for many of you. And so I'd love to focus more on those of you who have had to do more cognitive shifts. Um, because by the time that I became a Christian, when someone told me that it was sort of anti-Christian to do abortion, I was like, I think there's a lot of good reasons for it. And I think it fits within my framework even now. I went to a Catholic high school seminary, which meant that at one point I was discerning for the Catholic priesthood. One theological position that Catholicism is often known for is for being what is often called pro-life, which means essentially anti-abortion. So that was sort of the background I came from my Catholic high school seminary went to the March for Life every single year. And I went to it one year. So I come from a very, very, very different background from any. Speaking of having to go through a lot of shifting myself. Mm -hmm. So I smirked a little bit when Alana said, when it was the first time you heard about like or what was your experience with reproductive rights growing up? And the smirk is, is that I probably didn't know the verbiage of women's reproductive rights, probably until I was in college, I would assume. It was never framed in that way. And a large portion of my understanding around sex and sexuality came from my school, which was a Southern Baptist school. So even if my parents had different views or something like that, we, it wasn't really talked about a whole lot. I think I, I grew up with the kind of classic understanding around sex, which is we don't talk about it. And you get to like, you know, blind leading the blind, if that ever comes to be a thing. <laughs> it's almost like if we give you too much information, then you might actually have it. And so I'm talking about a lot about sex and I realize that women's reproductive rights are very different than sex. But for me, I think a reason why reproductive rights were never talked about was because sex for them was at the root of all of it. So there was never a need for you to 
need to get an abortion if you were having the right kind of sex within a marriage. And of course, you're going to want to have a child. And so if you're pregnant, why would there be any need for you to get an abortion? I don't think that I ever heard the word abortion in my school. I'm sure they probably used another term like murder or something along those lines. Yes, I, I lived a very sheltered life and understanding around reproductive rights and what that would look like. I do remember very distinctly at like 15 or 14, um, needing to go on birth control as many women do or folks with uteruses do to help manage a host of different health um, symptoms and stuff like that that I was having at that point. And I remember knowing or feeling embarrassed, one, to communicate that with my friends that I was on birth control. Technically, I was on birth control talk about that openly or comfortably and additionally god bless my dad i remember distinctly him needing to like go pick up my prescriptions from the pharmacy and i would ask can you go get my birth control and i knew he did not like me saying that he would prefer me to say can you just go get my medicine or pick it up from the pharmacy so there was this like built-in embarrassment and shame around needing that and not even needing it for preventing pregnancy or anything like that. Like needing it because, you know, I had horrible periods and had migraines and all sorts of different things that were debilitating. Yeah, that feels like a lot of stuff. So there you go. There's my understanding of growing up with women's reproductive rights. Yeah, I mean, I think that touches on how in the Christian conversation, it's not just about can people get an abortion? It's a broader question of what does it mean to get an abortion and why would you get an abortion? And what are the contexts in which abortion arises or the need for abortion would arise? I assume some kind of sexual relationship often. And why do we think about that sexual relationship? Do we condemn it? Do we not? But it also extends to questions about how we think about health care for people who have uteruses, right? It's a much broader question that ends up getting implicated in this. And I think we often miss the nuances there, right? So we're thinking about women, we're thinking about trans men, we're thinking about non-binary AFAB folks. We're thinking about anyone who was born with a uterus and may need at some point some kind of health care having to do with that. And so a lot of people are implicated in this, at least half the population. So I think for me, I would say that as a kid, uh, yeah, it definitely didn't talk about abortion. I don't remember hearing that word. It was one of those, I mean, Virginia and I have like the same background essentially. So same things apply in many ways. Like we just didn't talk about sex. Um, sex ed was left up to the schools. Um, but even then, I don't remember learning about abortion. There is this very recessed memory that I have of 
in eighth grade, I was on a debate team and I don't even remember the debate team except for uh, we did a, an abortion debate and I was on the pro-abortion side and my teacher pulled me aside and she said, I know that um, you're Christian and I just want to make sure you're okay with this. And I thought, huh, like, like it gave me pause, but I didn't really have a framework, a theological framework to think about it. I just knew that there were people who were anti-abortion, who were Christian, and I felt okay at the time. I mean, I wasn't connected to a religious community or anything really, except my grandparents, but I felt okay at the time being on the pro-abortion side. I didn't feel like I had any strong sense of pro or anti or anything like that. But then when I went to college to Southeastern University, man, there was a huge um, anti-abortion slash pro-life movement there. And particularly, I got really involved in International House of Prayer, Kansas City stuff, my hop for short. And they were very big in the pro-life movement. I was visiting my parents who had moved to Tennessee, and there was this local church I attended sometimes that was connected to IHOP Kansas City. And I think it was Christmas Eve, and they were preaching about Herod killing the babies in Bethlehem. And the pastor compared that to American abortions and talked about how we're killing off a generation of prophets. You know, I remember feeling so fired up, like, yes. And I remember I was heavily into like praying through the scriptures and stuff. I was praying through Proverbs one day and I got to Proverbs 31 and Proverbs 31, eight and nine has this passage about um, speak up for those who have no voice. And I felt like the Lord was like, even this language, the Lord was giving me a word, right? The Lord was um, hastening my heart and calling me to, you know, really take on this passage. And at the time, a lot of people were using that, especially in IHOP Kansas City. I later found out, like after I felt connected to this verse, I then heard it used in the context of those who have no voice are those who are unborn. And those are the people we need to speak up for. So from that point on, it was kind of cemented for me that to be a Christian was to speak up for those who had no voice and those who had no voice at the end of the day were really those who were unborn. And it was certainly framed as um, we were like Herod murdering babies. It's so bad. It's so bad. There like are no words. I wonder what else is anyone... What's coming up for you right now as you hear that? How does that resonate? How does it not resonate? What are your theological convictions? I mean, I can definitely hear the passion and the plea behind the idea of speaking for those without a voice, including babies, infants, et cetera, like, and other folks who cannot, who literally cannot vocalize for themselves or create words for themselves or however you want to put it. And so there is something beautiful to that. And it's also ignoring all the people who are already born 
whose voices are being silenced, including the people of color who are most affected by abortion bans, people who are poor, people who don't have good access to healthcare, or if they are interested in being pregnant, who experience higher infant mortality rates and lower rates of prenatal care. So if we are concerned about speaking up for those and amplifying the voices of those who do not have one, there are plenty of people on this side of things who already exist, who are already suffering. And I think, honestly, that's where my compass continues to come back to is there are already people here. And so the person whose life is already here, I believe it deserves even more of a voice than the life that is not here yet or not going to be here since not all abortions are for unwanted pregnancies. There are a lot of miscarriages or genetic abnormalities that will result in painful life, et cetera. So I will say that even in my former context, people would say, sure, you know, people are going to be born with abnormalities or we're told that they will be, but we need to trust God that everything's going to be okay. So they would go through with it. I should definitely clarify that by abnormalities, I mean things that will make it so that it is literally an unviable pregnancy. So like the child will be born dead or the child will have a 10 minute long life and it will be terrible. And they still um, would do it. Because I am such a strong disability theologian as my main lens, like I just really wanted to make sure I clarified that all the way through. Because sometimes I believe that pro-choice arguments go too far in talking about the kinds of pregnancies that could slash should be aborted. And so I sometimes worry about the language there. Mm -hmm. Like the qualification of like what life is deemed saving. Yeah. Like a lot of people abort fetuses with Down syndrome once they learn. Um, I think there are a few things that percolate in my head and they're all giving me not different messages, but like different, different ways of going with it. One is I am also a large, a huge proponent of giving voice to the voiceless and speaking up for those that have been isolated and marginalized. And so I have a heart in that. When I heard about overturning of Roe v. Wade, I immediately think of the women and the people with uteruses that feel like they have no other options and their voices not being heard, we're cutting out those voices. We're saying they're not as important. And I also really worry about suicidality. I worry a lot about women that are going to feel like they have no other option out and that death feels preferable than having an unwanted pregnancy for whatever reason that is. So that lies heavy for me. I also have 
this other vein of working in a hospital context, a good portion of my job is, is responding to fetal demises, which is what in the hospital we call um, a miscarriage or a stillbirth. So I've worked with a lot of women that have lost babies, that desperately want those babies. Maybe I've there's several people that I've worked with multiple times um, that have lost multiple babies after rounds of IVF and what other means they have to make that happen for them and, and desperately want to be parents. And so I have that, I have that like high respect for life and the fragility of life and the fragility of like what it takes for a life to be born and then also to actually raise it. And so I also have this vein of, unfortunately, and I'm sure any has this experience too, of working with a lot of kids that have been severely neglected and abused and it's so apparent that their parents didn't want them. That that was not something that was a that was in the cards for them, and they probably just didn't have the resources to make it work. And so I have that sort of talking to me too. And then I also have um, one of my favorite places to go for like theological understanding, which is called the midwife. So for folks that like have not watched Call the Midwife, you should watch Call the Midwife. Call the Midwife really has a, I don't know, it's like, it's like this visceral truth that is in this show. And a huge portion of this show is around women's reproductive rights. And talking about the pain and the death that can come from people trying to access abortions in unsafe circumstances. And it's like, if that is not convicting, then I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. What about you, Brendan? I guess for me, I think where I'm at is that speaking of giving a voice to the voiceless, I think in this on this issue, it is of utmost importance to give a voice to the people who either end up getting an abortion or are in the sorts of situations that statistically speaking, make one at most risk for getting an abortion women who don't have a lot of economic means, for example. I read in an NPR article just earlier today that three quarters of women who get an abortion are below the poverty line. I have all too often found that those voices don't seem to be at the center of a lot of these sorts of conversations. So that for me weighs very heavily on me. 
Um, and then I think another thing that weighs heavily on me, not just with abortion, but with a variety of other theological issues is how much a lot of theology beliefs and issues end up being fear-based and I tend to just in general have a intense level of skepticism when it comes to any theology that is fear-based. Can you say more about what the fears are connected to this theological framework? I think just in general fear of people's bodies you know when it comes to particularly sex and um, sexuality in general so I think there is a lot of fear surrounding that in particular um so and what's the fear though that God won't accept them or love them yeah i i think that's i I think that's the biggest fear or at least one of the biggest fears that i have noticed Mm -hmm. um you know that fear that god won't accept them or love them which is a fear that plays out with um, a variety of theological issues as well not just abortion. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point that, I mean, this is connected to our larger Christian framework. This is connected to how we understand who God is and how God is at work in the world and what God is up to in the world. And I think the sad truth is, is that religion has often been used for fearing or for control through fear. Right. And so if you can, I mean, and it's very effective, very powerful, you can create lots of fear and shame by telling people that you are an authority, that you know what God thinks, and that you think God thinks that what they're doing is wrong. That's a heavy authority. And I mean, in many ways, the church is losing that authority in our own culture, which think in many ways is good but I think in a lot of ways also our culture is just reacting to those things rather than responding you know creating a more helpful response so I wonder when we think about what's a more helpful response to the church what is a helpful theological response for a way forward because I do think that the pro-life movement is very much rooted in our own theological framework, that this is rooted in Christian tradition. And so I think the question is, as we reimagine Christianity for the 21st century, what is a helpful theological response to the pro-life movement? I think one of the things I've sort of come to understand in my mind about the pro-life movement is like, if someone has integrity in their beliefs of like, if you're gonna be pro-life, that means literally like 
everything in between. That means you're for parental leave. That means you're for universal pre-K, free lunches for all, CHIP and other child Medicaid programs and things like that. Like if you're gonna be pro-life, go whole hog. Because I, I can respect someone who has integrity being quote unquote pro-life, anti-abortion, anti-AR-15s, anti-mass incarceration, death penalty. But I don't really find that many of those. I can probably list them on one hand. And I've walked in a lot of evangelical circles. I used to live in Nashville, Tennessee. And the fact that I can name fewer than five people who have that integrity all the way through in their philosophical and theological principles is where I lose respect for the movement. And I think that, and what I'm wondering more is, I think certainly that's a very valid point. I think the truth is all of us lack integrity fully in our beliefs, for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, we could easily talk about our own selves there too. I think though, I'm wondering, so for me, I can, you know, I was very acquainted with, you know, a biblical basis for a pro-life movement. Like there was a whole theology around it. It wasn't just like, well, we think God is pro-life. You know, I mean, certainly it was tied up in political power and ideology and politics of the 60s and 70s, but they used the scriptures and they wove this tapestry and so I'm wondering what's the tapestry that we weave what are we weaving are we just saying you're wrong or what do we say I think that one of the important things that somewhat dovetailing with what Emmy said that you know is often missed in these conversations is Relating to mentioning of paid family leave, some of the reasons why people get abortions in the first place. And, you know, that that often gets missed in those, you know, in these sorts of conversations. And this is according to, you know, a Guttmacher Institute study years ago at this point. You know, it was found that a lot of people get abortions because um, women are not able to afford to have a baby in many cases. You know, there are a variety of other reasons as well. And I think that if one is serious about actually reducing the number of abortions, then it's important to understand the circumstances that lead to an abortion in the first place and then work from there. What you're saying, Brendan, still assumes that we want to reduce the amount of abortions. Yes, that, it is, still that assumes, is correct. It still assumes that a Christian framework is anti-abortion or at least heavily against abortion. And I'm wondering, with that, is there a Christian framework that is pro-abortion? I think there's a wide spectrum of pro-abortion. 
but within a Christian framework, how would within one a Christian construct that? How do you construct that? Emmy, you have what sounds like a much more pro-abortion stance, not necessarily that you're saying, everybody get an abortion, but yeah. you're saying, you know what? This is a viable option. Theologically, I think, where do you ground that for you and who God is? Maybe this reflects that I didn't grow up like swimming in Christian context, but like I'm okay in this case, not having a super strong scriptural argument for being pro-choice and instead relying on like theological and sociological reasons or reasons as in like what I see as my own reasoning, whether someone agrees with it or not. I do worry sometimes, like I am going to say, like when you uh, mentioned a minute ago about like that assumes that a Christian framework immediately or like already has in mind a reduction of abortions. I definitely do. As someone who works with kids, I like the thought of it breaks my heart. And yet as someone who lives with people who have, who are currently living, who are seeing baby formula shortages, who are experiencing wild healthcare costs, who are seeing a world on fire with climate change and are so stressed out by their jobs and poverty. Like with what Brendan was bringing up a few minutes ago about like, if you actually want to reduce the number of abortions, dot, dot, dot for folks who are like classically considered pro-life, like, yes. I don't think you can be pro-life and also anti-intrauterine device, which a few states are moving to outlaw. I think it's nearly impossible to be pro-life while also anti-sex education, comprehensive sex education that reduces the number of accidental pregnancies. So yes, I fit in a framework of pro-choice, but I am praying for a day when it is, not only safe, but rare to get an abortion. So your theological framework has a, an arc towards the eradication of abortion. Yes, except yeah. for, you know, reasons that are just honestly beyond our control or relate to a lack of justice in other ways. Like content note for sexual assault, I am a survivor of sexual assault, and I know that if I had gotten pregnant, I would have gone to the closest Planned Parenthood, and there's no qualm about that in my head. That child would not have experienced the life that it would have deserved, uh, because I would have been 21 years old, not a parent by choice, experiencing exhaustion from being a single parent and having chronic health problems, et cetera, et cetera. And so even though I am very pro-choice with the eventual hope for arc of like fewer than what we have now, I know that I very much would not have regretted getting an abortion. I do also want to lift up 95% of people five years later say they do not regret their abortion. So, I mean, what I hear and what you're saying is you want to make space for it to occur and you ultimately see it as something to get rid of, except in rare cases. 
that the, the better choice is a world where it's not needed. Yeah. Looking at the better world and imagining what God can do to bring us to a place where people aren't in a constant state of crisis and wondering if they can afford parenthood or if they can afford having another child or if the fetus is going to be viable mm -hmm. because of infertility problems or um, very painful illnesses or whatever it may be. Virginia, what about you? Um, you know, Christianity is such a embodied faith tradition. The incarnation, the word becoming flesh, I mean, there's so much inherent embodiment of all of that. The Annunciation, right? the, um, the spirit coming upon Mary and impregnating her also embodied. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get quiet. I don't know that like I'm getting quiet. And so I was reading something from an old pastor friend of mine who is a mother. I think she has three kids. And she was posting and saying that carrying a child to term and physically giving birth to that child, whether that is vaginally or by cesarean section or by surrogacy, is one of the most intimate choices that she's ever made for herself to have another human being um, inside of you growing that fetus and physically giving birth to it and then caring for it is such an intimate thing for someone to do. And in a embodied theology where choice and autonomy is very important and, and of utmost importance, I think, I don't know how that intimate of a choice for a woman to do those things, to to carry a child and then to give birth to it, how how that wouldn't be supported, how abortion isn't also a part of that conversation in an uplifting way. Yeah. Is somebody about to say something? Since, you know, what I said, I guess, where prompted the question of, is it possible to have a Christian framework that is pro-choice? You know, absolutely. And I think part of that framework should include the fact that, that you know, so many um, women who experience restrictions and access to abortion experience challenges with mental health as a result. Um, and that doesn't seem very kind or very loving to make people go through that either. I think that alone, at least for me personally, provides a framework for 
the importance of there being access to abortion, regardless of any feelings about whether they should be reduced or not, like whether um, whether the goal should be for there to be fewer abortions or not. Just the fact that restricting access causes such challenges uh, mentally as well as economically in many cases after such experiences, that weighs very heavily um, on me and I think should weigh heavily for, for a lot of us. So I think in thinking about a future where abortions are um, decreased, what I hear in that is the assumption that abortions are inherently not the best way forward and that a better way forward is to have less of them. And to me, that still sounds like it borrows the assumptions of a pro-life argument that say life begins the moment that the egg is fertilized. Life begins at conception, and that is when we must begin to protect it. And that's not my framework. <laughs> For me, in the future, have as many abortions, have more. I don't, like, to me, it's not, I don't know. I don't see it as a bad thing. I see it as a thing that we need in a world where people are going to get pregnant and they may not be ready to have a child. They may not want children. They may feel, they may be in these circumstances where it's, feels impossible to be able to raise a child and do so well. There may be cases of rape and or incest. It may be a trans person who gets pregnant, who for them, it's a very dysphoric experience to be pregnant. Like there's all kinds of reasons. And so for me, abortion is a good in many ways. It's a, it's not an evil, it's a gift. It's um, something that we can offer to people who are in circumstances that I mean, in many ways, I think we are not just protecting the parent, but we're also protecting the child who could be and who could experience a life that would be harmful. You know, in the pro-life argument, at least in the pro-life argument that I was part of, there was a huge emphasis on when life began and how that's what makes it murder. That's what makes abortion bad. Abortion is bad because it's murder. And it has to do a lot with this notion of um, Imago Dei, the image of God. Every person is created in the image of God. And so I think that's a really important question to wrestle with is, what does it mean to abort a fetus? Are we killing a child? Are we harming the image of God? That raises a whole big question of where does life begin? Which I know scientifically there isn't, please correct me if I'm wrong, but scientifically there isn't necessarily one answer that everyone agrees to. There are multiple, um, there are multiple arguments for multiple stages. So for the state of New York, that period is uh, 24 weeks. And that is the time at which if a demise happens, if a miscarriage happens or a spontaneous abortion happens, 
the parents or the parent is legally obligated to bury or cremate the fetus. Before 24 weeks, they do not. The, they can, we call it routine disposition or the hospital will dispose of the fetus. But after the 24 week determined as uh, viability, um, and so they're required to like, uh, yeah, bury that kind of thing too. There's lots of like distinctions around these kinds of things that I find very interesting. Additionally, even if a fetus is not considered viable after they've been born, maybe at 24 weeks or even 23 weeks at that point, if they take a breath, if there's any sign of like spontaneous movement in that sense, then immediately, you know, we have to create a birth and death certificate for the fetus as well. And so whether or not that should be considered life, plenty of healthcare providers that would say that it's not life. There's no viability there. Yeah. I don't know. There are some thoughts for you for the day. <laughs> the only reason yeah. why I know that's because of the work, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, there are some religious frameworks, but that is the definition of when life begins is when you take your first breath. Because it goes back to um, God breathing into Adam and bringing life. The human, Ha'adam, the Adam, is made out of Ha'adamah, the earth. And it's not a human, it's not alive until God breathes into it. Yes, and that's a Jewish theology that we lost in the Christian framework sometimes since 1960. Because in the articles I've read, it seems like Christians did not care about abortion until around the time of civil rights. And then it got linked in with a lot of white supremacy stuff. For sure. There's a whole political white supremacist feminism. It's all connected. I think this is why it matters that we can think through our assumptions here and say, you know what? I didn't realize that I was even assuming this. And here's the framework that I think might be a helpful way forward. I think everyone sort of hit on this is that abortion is not something that's necessarily easy for people to do. One of my friends that I worked with at a church, she had an abortion while we were working together and she didn't tell anyone at first. And I just remember she was so heavy for a while. And then eventually she shared, but it, for her, it was a real, you know, it was a loss. There was something to grieve there. The, the loss of what could have been. And so I think that even in the framework of gift, that doesn't mean for me that it's necessarily something easy or that feels happy. For me, seeing it as a gift is something that helps aid us in the sufferings of life that may also bring about its own suffering. But I want to hold this nuanced picture the conversation needs 
increasing nuance. And I think what's happening right now is it's very emotional. I mean, this has to do with people's lives and how they perceive their ability to live more freely and how they, on the flip side, on the pro-life side, this has to do with what people view as right and moral and good and true and godly. And so there's a lot at stake for people. People hold this issue so tightly. And so I think that as we move forward, it's important to hold that sensitivity around it for people. You know, I mean, this is a deep issue. And especially from a Christian point to ask what, for me at least, to ask, what does increasing compassion and empathy look like in this scenario? And I think for me, if I lead with that value of speaking up for those who have no voice, there's many voices, like we have said already, that are not being heard. And I think the question is, whose voice will we give priority to? And I think, like you said, Emmy, I want to give priority to the people who are already here suffering. I want to alleviate suffering that exists right now in front of me and not just think about the suffering of a fetus. But I think part of this too, Emmy, like you were saying, it's linked into white supremacy and the civil rights movement. There is often this connection with whiteness and pro-life movements, and it certainly can perpetuate stereotypes. It can perpetuate racism. And I think that it has to do with the way that we can see the issues right in front of us. It's a great tool of whiteness because it keeps us from looking at the people in front of us who are suffering and focuses on a person we can't see. It moves the, um, it takes the passions of the heart and puts them in a place that's neat and tidy. You don't actually have to do anything for that fetus at the moment. But on the other hand, you do have to provide health care and schooling and food and shelter and so many other things to those who are already here. Things that, if you ask me, we don't do a very good job of for those who are most vulnerable. Mm-hmm it's easy for us to place all of our hopes and dreams and in in a like a soft squishy baby soft squishy babies are like the perfect little package that people can and project all their issues onto and expectations when you have unstable housing and can't provide for yourself and existing seems absolutely exhausting and too much most of the time and you get pregnant and someone says so sorry but um, it'll be your job to figure this one out but we're not going to help you at all with that how is that increasing compassion how is that caring for someone how is that loving them at all and it's not so we want to protect the soft squishy babies right right and the laws put all the pressure on the birthing person instead of 
Well, what about the impregnator? <laughs> right. What about the sperm donor? <laughs> yeah, takes two to tango. That's the truth. Sometimes more, but yeah. So we also can clearly see the patriarchal uh, influence in these laws. I wonder, as a closing thought, if you could share, what is it that you would love to go to church and hear people say about reproductive rights? What would you love to hear from the pulpit? I wish I heard anything from the pulpit. Anything, even um, anti-abortion sermons? Oh, sorry, that was sloppy. I wish I heard anything that lifted up the people who have needed or wanted to get abortions and said they did what was right for them and we do not fit in their doctor's office with them. We are not them. We are not the person who got them pregnant. We don't fit in there. And I trust that God is with them in there, whatever it is that they choose to do. Mm -hmm. I wish for the church to recognize that people that are trying to access abortions don't need the church and religion weighing them down in that decision process when they're making those choices for themselves, but rather the church and religion can be something that can uplift them in those decisions for themselves and helping them have their autonomy over their bodies. Mm -hmm. I wish that there's a recognition that there are many things in life that involve difficult decisions and that the choice of whether to get an abortion or not is one of them. And that the person from the pulpit just encourages people to talk between themselves and God as to whether um, it is the right decision for them or not to get an abortion. Because ultimately, I'm not God. Um, none of us are. Um, and that decision should be between the um, pregnant woman and God, or between the pregnant person and God. I think for me, the reality is, even if the church that you're in hasn't said anything, the church at large in America has said plenty for us. And so the assumption is already there. The groundwork is already there. Like I have people come to me all the time with an assumption of what I believe. And so this is why I think it's so important that we as clergy can say what we actually believe from the pulpit because what we're doing is we're removing stigma and we're creating a sense of authenticity even on Sunday we were talking about how we're going to have drinks at an event in church and somebody shared how in the past they all knew that each other were having cocktail parties and they would go to each other's houses for cocktail parties but they would never do it in front of the pastor Right, and so there's this disconnect often between what people do in church and 
what they do outside of church. And people will then carry shame for what they do outside of church because it wasn't talked about in church because it was already assumed what was expected. And so my hope is that when we think about the pulpit, I would love to go to a church, which I have, Judson Memorial Church in New York City already does this. They have been fighting for reproductive rights, I believe, since the 70s, starting with the Clergy Consultation Network, which before Roe v. Wade was legal, Judson was part of a network of clergy and rabbis who would go and test these illegal abortion clinics to ensure that they were safe for women, anyone who was giving birth. And so I think that for me, that made such a difference to go to a church where they talked about it openly from the pulpit, where it was understood that they supported this, that they would help you if you needed an abortion, that they loved you, that they believed God loved you, and that you were worthy of love no matter what. And that's what I want people to take away. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Glenwood Table Podcast. As always, you can follow us on social media. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would love it if you would hit that subscribe button or if you would leave a review, however you're listening to this podcast. And let your friends and family know about it. We want to create conversation and we would love to be in conversation with you. So if you ever want to connect, as always, you can reach out to us in our Instagram, our Facebook at Glenwood Table, or send us an email at the table at fpcglencove.org. And until next time, remember, you are loved and you are enough. Take care, friends.